Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go. Indie Game Business. Good morning, friends. I'm Indy, and welcome to another exciting day of the Indie Game Business Conference. I am dressed for the occasion. Look at this. I matched the background, right? Um, I would like to thank our sponsors, Tripwire Presents. Thank you so much. We appreciate you so very much. And I would like to introduce our amazing first guest of the morning, my new friend, Koss, from Works Games. And he's going to be talking about getting diversity and culture right in the game industry and it's talking about 32 hour work week i think gaming culture and diversity is super important but so is comfort and i'm sure he thinks that as well (laughs) so (laughs) because he looks so comfortable i want to get one of those jay can i get one of those uh chairs for work here i think that's awesome (laughs) all right well take it away cost and and enjoy everybody Thank you. Good morning, uh, if you're in the US, and good afternoon, if you're in, in Europe. Uh, thank you for coming to the talk bright and early. Um, and we're talking about diversity, culture, and other good stuff in the gaming industry today. And let's see. So it's probably a good idea to understand who we are, since um, it's unlikely anybody's heard of us, since we're relatively new. So Works Games was recently honored in the United Kingdom by the Barclays Entrepreneur Awards this year as a regional winner in the games category in London. Uh, which we were quite uh, happily surprised to get. It's a relatively small company and was founded five years ago. Um, It's a a company on a very big mission. So we had a lot of groundwork and legwork to build before we could start putting products out. We got our feet wet in 2019 with our first PC release and our first tabletop game release, but our actual products that we're going to be bringing out to the market for commercial value are starting next year. Um, And we actually got the recognition from Barclays largely because of the fact that we have a a completely remote, very diverse team that has, through a combination of operational setup we have at works and quality and caliber of people that have joined us, been able to to deliver a result that is vastly beyond what the tiny 12-person team really ought to be able to do. We are headquartered in London. We have a sales office in the United States with one opening in Singapore later next year. And we are at Works Games on all social. I myself go back quite a long way in the gaming industry um, and started uh, 25 years ago, actually. It was the very first thing when I was but a young fellow back in the wild days when I still wore pants. This is like a, a long while ago. Uh, and uh, I had a tabletop game company called Sylvan Publishing. And we were the first people to do um, digital tabletop games. These are games like Dungeons and Dragons in PDF format. And we had like audio and video and stuff built into the PDFs. It was very, it was at the time very cutting edge, and we sold them at a very high price point. And now, as a 25-year-old, I was good at a lot of things, but one thing I wasn't good at was running a company. So although we did do very well, it didn't turn into the company I wanted it to be. And 25 years later, Works Games is now the thing I, that Sylvan Publishing would have been if I knew what I knew today. So let us get on with it. It's a good idea to have an understanding of what we're actually going to be spending the next 35, 40 minutes doing. Uh, The game industry is awash in discussions, debates, as it should be, uh, about diversity and and culture in the industry because the last generation of the industry was pivotal in getting the industry to where it is today in the world, but it made a lot of mistakes, Um, especially in the the Western gaming industry. Um, However, but this presentation is not a bunch of, uh, of, of, uh, of general fluff about diversity. Um, there's a lot of that around, and it needs to be around because that gets the debate going, it gets the talking going. 
and it gets the the, the subject at the forefront. Uh, but I think something that's been lacking a lot in what I've seen so far in the last 12 months is a, a, a not so much a definition of the problem, but what do we actually do about the problem, which is what this presentation is going to be. We are going to have a little discussion today about practical things you can do. Uh, and what I wanted out of this presentation was at the end of it for you to have a blueprint that you could take away and execute in your organizations. Keeping in mind, of course, that the way we did it is right for us and the way a plan or a process is executed has a lot to do with the environment, the people, the timing, the particular circumstances of that particular execution. So this is not about you slam dunking this word for word into your world, but taking from it what is practically sensible for you and executing in a manner that's right for you as you see fit. Uh, right. So this is one of the questions that I tend to find people don't ask a lot when they discuss it. Do you actually need diversity? Diversity is not about running around the place and hiring 2.5 diverse people every other month, uh, which is a thing companies are doing now. Uh, that's the silly version of this. Um, that is not the right way to execute it because it's important when you do anything in your company that you begin by asking your understanding what you are, who you are, and what you exist for. A game development company is a consumer-facing product organization. Therefore, we exist for our consumers first. So the first thing we should look at is who are your consumers and who do you want your consumers to be? Uh, if it is so that as a game development company, 90% of your consumer base is heterosexual white males, and that is the right consumer base for your products, and that is who you want your consumer base to be, there is no point uh, having, having your company be 90% heterosexual white males is perfectly sensible. And there is no reason for you, to, for you, the industry, anyone to be forcing diversity on you if it isn't right for you and isn't right for your consumers. Now, the people we typically refer to as diverse minorities um, are not the minorities of the gaming consumer world. Uh, the vast majority of gamers in the world are not heterosexual white males. Um, in fact, they're not white at all, and they barely speak English. So if you're going to succeed as a global gaming company or as a company that, that, that deploys to a global gaming audience, you are going to need to be diverse, and it is going to be hard to be uh, the company that develops games for a diverse gaming audience unless you as a company are diverse. And that is the thing that should lead you to the question. You ask yourself, who are our consumers? Who do we want our consumers to be? That should be your guiding pathway to deciding what diversity is in your organization. Because this is a really, really broad term and can happily encompass a wide variety of things. So first of all, let's understand the problem. This has been a problem of some considerable scope in the, in the Western gaming industry for a couple of decades. We know that now. Uh, the gaming industry has been very under the hood and, and opaque to the rest of the world for a long time. Then it started to succeed massively, uh, and that put floodlights on it and eyeballs on it. Layers started to get peeled away. And one of the biggest issues that have cropped up that have received a lot of, a lot of public publicity is this issue of why is there such a gargantuan lack of diversity and such a gargantuan cultural problem with work ethics, work time, uh, effort writers versus value, pay and gender pay gap issues. Why such a problem? So it is important to understand that there is a problem. Um, and the problem exists for a good reason. Uh, bias is not a uh, uh, is not like a, a fluffy word. It, it is actually very present and it exists inside any human being because if you have gone through life and had certain experiences, it is impossible for those experiences to not bias you. So bias does exist for good reasons and denying it is a meaningless exercise. Recruiting is a heavily biased activity. 
Um, it tends to lead to bad choices because the recruiting processes that we use in the world and, and the things that we do when we talk about HR and when we talk about recruiting tends to lead to a very biased uh, execution. And that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. And, and you will have encountered these things multiple times in your life, in your work and in, your, in the companies you've worked in and for is that if you ask, uh, if you have a situation where you have a large company, for example, let, who has a, an office building or thousands of people in it, and you have an HR organization whose job it is, is to recruit talent for that organization, they are going to lean towards recruiting birds of a feather because when you're talking about sticking thousands of people into one physical location, you kind of need them to get along. Uh, if there isn't a natural tendency to go off and recruit some extremely different or really challenging person into that world because it causes the lack of ability to work together. So HR has a tendency to lean towards hiring birds of a feather in any large organization. And beating that requires some really focused processes to beat that. Speed is also your enemy here. I tend to find that recruiting processes in companies tend to be too fast and start too close to the point where you need talent. So you're in a rush and you therefore recruit what you understand, what you're comfortable with and who is close to you rather than recruiting the right person for the job or the right person for the company. So by and large, the problem of human resources tends to be the actual human itself. And therefore, we need to construct processes in the, in the recruiting process in order, to, in order to circumvent the problems that we as human beings tend to bring to the equation. Um, and this is something we went through in a really concerted sort of way at, at works by getting it this completely wrong in the beginning, stopping to understand why we got it wrong, and then changing it to get it right. So what does right actually look like? This is going to be very different for every company, but this is what right looks like for us. We began with defining the format. Uh, we made the conclusion to say that we were going to be fully remote. We did that right from day one, long before COVID happened. Even my first company 25 years ago was a remote organization. Therefore, this is not new to me. I, I, there's lots of value in doing companies fully remote. You just need to do it properly. We did not come to this conclusion in the first instance. In the first instance of works, in the first year of works, I had envisioned kind of works towers. There was gonna to be an office. There was gonna be a bunch of people working on the, in the office. We were gonna do incredible work together in close collaboration. This plan failed spectacularly. Um, and we then started to transition slowly into sort of a semi-permanent, semi-remote uh, freelancer sort of role. That too had a lot of problems because everything that is around a company, organizational processes, communication, development processes, all of these things are completely different based on whether there's permanent employees in there or remote employees in there. So if you're going to do a half and half thing, you're going to challenge yourself as an organization very heavily to get those processes right and optimized. We decided to do this the easy way and moved away from that half and half model and, and made a decision after year one that we were going to be fully remote. Uh, I do think that for it's best from a process point of view and from a growth point of view to make a really hard decision whether you're going to be fully permanent or fully remote and pick one or the other. It is not impossible to do both. It's just twice the work and therefore you must be ready to put in twice the work. The talent type. This was also one of these things that we learned by doing. We are 100% freelance, no exceptions. The reason for this is that as a small company that has a very big, big mission, we needed really top talent. And as we were going through our first 12 to 18 months, we noticed a few weird things. We'd hire a bunch of perfectly good looking, uh, at least in the CV experience, permanent staff. They would do work and they'd have a certain output level. Uh, once we started doing the half and half thing and we started hiring freelancers, we were hiring experienced freelancers because most freelancers are experienced. And we found that their 
work output was massively higher. Not just a little bit higher, but massively higher, like to a 5x, 10x level higher. This struck me as weird in the beginning, and I started looking into, well, what, what, what is actually happening here? And what was happening was a generational thing. We have had an entire generation of the game industry come and go, and in that generation, people have grown. There are experienced talent out there at a large scale, and many of them are seeking a better work-life balance than they found in that generation of the gaming industry. So a lot of the really top-tier talent in development, design, art, are freelancing because their skill set allows them to do it comfortably. They get better work-life balance out of it. So we found that when we went and hired permanent staff, we were, we were forced to hire the people in our local country and local market and we were looking for the best people in our geographical area rather than the best people in the world for that slot or for that role. And if you uh, and we eventually went fully freelance because we found that on a very, very consistent basis, being able to expand our pool to a worldwide talent pool rather than just a UK talent pool put an enormously larger and higher caliber talent in front of us for the recruiting process. This is why we are 100% freelance. Diversity-wise, we insist on being broad in diversity. For us, this is, again, looking at who our consumers are. This is definitely not a, a question for us because less than 10% of our gamers are English-speaking, European, or in a Western market. So for us, when we are developing games, it is essential for us to have a very broad, diverse outlook on how we look at games and the kind of content we develop in games, because that's who our consumer base is. So this was never in contention for us. Inclusion um, matters because game development is not a short-term exercise. Even a decent single A indie title requires a minimum of really two to three years these days to get out the door. You can't stay committed for such a long-term exercise of effort and creative juicing unless you feel there's something in it for you. Uh, and we found that the best way to do inclusion is to just make everyone a shareholder in the company. The first year of the business, uh, of your employment in the business is provisional. During that year, I test people heavily um, because no matter how good your recruiting process it is, is it's, it's possible that people will be able to fake their way into it. And someone can fake who they are, what they're like, what they do, their skill set for a month, maybe three months. If you're really good at it, six months. But you're never going to be able to consistently fake it for a year. So we put every single person who comes into the company through their paces for 12 months, make sure they are who they think, who they say they are, make sure who they are who that we think they are and once that first year has gone by i will ask myself the question am i prepared to work with this person for the rest of my life uh, and if the answer to that question is yes they move on from there into the the longer term employment pathway in which includes becoming a shareholder and a share option package is allocated every single year like clockwork pay one of the great questions of the, uh, the, um, the industry these days, and largely with Ubisoft leading the gender pay discussion right now because they're the ones who got hit with the limelight there. Uh, it's a tough one, this. And there are many different ways to do uh, pay equality and pay fairness. Again, we're not people to dwell on the administrative side of the company overly much. We want to focus on building the content. Uh, again, I picked the simplest possible model here. Uh, when you look at what a game is, it is easy to convince yourself that game developers are more important than anything else in the company because without them, there will never be a game. But that's the wrong way to look at it because you don't make money as a game company because you've developed a game. You make money when you ship the game. And you're not going to ship a game that doesn't have music, that doesn't have sound effects, that doesn't tell a great story. You're not going to be able to make money shipping a game without the marketing effort, without advertising. At the end of the day, if you look at the exercise of building a game commercially to release, 
there is no particular talent segment that isn't necessary. And removing that talent segment makes the game less likely to succeed. So whereas the game developer may wind up spending more days on the game development process than say the musician might, the musician and the game developer are both equally important to releasing the game. Therefore, we simply just pay everybody exactly the same salary. Uh, and this goes across all of the bands in the, in, the, in the company, no matter what you do, you, pay, you get paid what everybody else gets paid. We have a, because we're a freelance team, we have day rates and the day rate is equal for everyone at all times. I push the day rate upwards when I have enough money to push it upwards for everyone. Uh, but otherwise, at any given time, everyone gets paid the same amount. Uh, the organization that works is set up as self-managed small teams because we're international. There's no such thing as micromanagement in this company. When we hire somebody, we expect them to self-manage and, and drive the result that the company wants. The company is divided into a selection of teams. Each team has got a team leader. The team leaders have got a small team working for them. I set the framework of what I need from the team, but inside that framework, they deliver as they wish. So that is the method that works for us and payment is linked to performance. In our world, what that means is that at the beginning of every month, we look at the people who are working in the company and the team leaders will set their goals for the month in line with what the company wants. If those people do not get to those goals at the end of, those, at the end of that month, then they get paid the percentage that they actually got to. Uh, and if not, they get paid the full amount. Um, these days we're pretty well functioning on the, on the structural and the planning side of the business. Uh, very rarely does anybody not hit an agreed goal. Therefore, we have never had to dock anyone's pay at any point. But we have always been clear from the very first day that salary is a performance-based remuneration method. If you don't work, you don't get paid. And uh, the people that don't believe in that tend just don't come into the company. Uh, thus, we have a very, very well-balanced structure of high performance, high results versus equal value structured in. Now, this is how we did it. How do we know that we got it right? In the last five years of the business, of course, there have been situations where I've had to fire people or make people redundant due to, due to company requirements and changes of, of plans and things. Uh, but no one that we have put on the payroll has ever voluntarily left the company to go do other things. Our voluntary attrition is 0%. So we know that for us, we got this right. You will need to figure out in these headings the right things for you. The correct way to do it is to go from left to right. As you nail down the, the stuff on the left, the stuff on the right will automatically resolve itself for you. If you try to go from right to left or dot your way around this, what's going to happen is you're going to wind up having a recruiting policy that fits what you decided the company right wants on the right side instead of having the company that maximizes the people that you've got. So it's a left to right exercise and through experimentation and iteration, you will find the right balance for you. So all of this boils down to the recruitment process, which is a four step process for us. I will get into more details about this in the rest of the presentation, but these are the four things that are critical for us. We have a need versus want philosophy to hiring. We hire only when we genuinely need people. We have no such thing as continuous hiring. And we really think a lot about whether or not we're going to put somebody on the permanent running payroll. Um, and there's a good reason for that, which we'll get into. The initial pool is the single most important thing for diversity in your organization. Human beings are diverse by nature. If your recruitment is not diverse, that's because you've engineered it that way. Yeah, and the initial pool is the, only, is the single most important thing to get right. Hiring for performance and results is also an important thing. Testing in the right way is good during the hiring process. And the key thing at the end, and this is something we iterated our way to because from, from the failures in the first year, is like how do you make the decision of who to hire in a shortlist? Um, and what we have done is something quite unusual, we have pushed it to the talent to make the decision. And I'll explain how in a little bit. So let's take a look at need versus want. Hiring has consequences. 
works is on a long-term mission. So I, whenever I hire a person, I assume that person is going to be in the company for the rest of their lives. Therefore, you have to think about what you are as an employer when you're hiring somebody. What are you doing? You're giving them a livelihood and a purpose. You're putting food on the table. You have putting a roof over their heads. That's what a salary does for anyone. And therefore, you should never frivolously hire. But always make sure that the role is a genuine role that needs to be fulfilled. And if it isn't going to be continuously filled, hire a temporary person for it. And don't hire because you can't be bothered to do things properly. If your team is underperforming in any different capacity below where you expect them to be, you are not going to solve that with a diversity hire. You're not going to solve that with a hire of any kind. You have to solve the problem the company has first and hire for roles that are actually going to add value to the company. And this is a very important part of it. Decide really firmly whether someone really is needed or not. After that, the initial pool is absolutely critical. Because if you, and this is a problem we had in the UK in the first year when we looked at it, our initial pools were weak because we simply assumed that because the UK is an amazing game, it's hugely, hugely overrepresented when it comes to games. There are some 10,000 plus studios in this country. So we simply assumed that there must be amazing game industry talent to be having this company, which there is. However, the problem is that this is not a country that produces a high amount of technology talent because technology is not a very sought after education in the UK. Top developer talent doesn't naturally inhabit itself in the United Kingdom. It is also true that creative talent, although strong in the UK, is starting to fall behind a little bit in other parts of the world and tends to be quite uniform in its structure. So we found that the initial pool was coming through quite weakly in diversity as well as in, in skill set. And we found ways to increase that pool pretty significantly by utilizing communities and tools in the world. When we're hiring developers, we tend to use LinkedIn and we run ads across different countries. So typically we found that the United States, Africa as a continent, India, Vietnam are really strong countries for Unreal Engine developers and we are an Unreal company. Uh, so we will always throw out developer ads across all of these countries and then we will field an initial pool from there. For artists, we go nowhere other than ArtStation because ArtStation has the largest pool of professional artists working in the industry. And uh, we, we throw a job ad out on ArtStation and we typically get 100 to 150 applications for a single role. Writers and audio are slightly problematic, but we found that the people who work in this field keep a very close eye out on jobs. And uh, if you are simply active on social media and LinkedIn and you, you post your available openings, they will come to you. Similarly, everyone else that you might need in your company, LinkedIn is a good choice. Again, multiple ads across several countries. You will automatically wind up getting a very, very wide pool of talent. And from that point, if you then focus on ensuring that you hire the best person for the role, your company will automatically be diverse. So interestingly enough, at Works, we don't actually have a particular process for hiring diverse talent. We have a process of making doing this thing where the initial pool is always ensured to be diverse. And then from that, we pick the best possible choices and it automatically turned into a diversity rich company. Uh, testing is something we believe strongly in. But, and there are of course, lots of people uh, that do test before they hire, but I tend to find that they test the wrong things. What you don't want to do is waste your time and your employees, prospective employees time with esoteric stuff like personality tests, psychometric tests, and all that jazz. Culture fit is actually not a hugely necessary concept. Uh, because especially in a, in a remote functioning company, you don't really interact with each other that much. And typically well-structured, well-executing professionals are perfectly able to adapt to the culture of the company when they come in. 
you should always be testing for the job and the work that the person is actually being recruited to do. Because at the end of the day, a company hires to fulfill a role, a skill gap. The person needs to be able to execute and execute well. For developers, we execute a two-hour basic Unreal dev test. I do this test myself since I'm the person who leads game development in the company. I do not test for any advanced skills whatsoever. Uh, and this has a weirdly large amount of things to do with diversity because it turns out that in the Western part of the world, developers who have been for now the last 20 years relatively hyped as a um, category of, of talent because of the enormous post.com boom in the technology sector have a tendency to have a very large opinion of their skills that isn't necessarily always executed in the practical execution. Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out. So you need to make sure when you're talking to a developer and hiring a developer that they can actually do the work rather than simply being able to market their work, which developers have gotten very good at doing. If you go and look at Twitter, for example, you'll find a lot of game developers marketing their amazing advanced skill sets in incredible shader work or incredibly complex AI setups. This is great. The problem is that in a game development exercise, the amount of time you spent on complex AI setups and complex shaders and complex effects are about 10% of the total work that needs to be done. So there's no point hiring a person who's killing it in that bracket, but can't do the basic stuff. So when we do developer hires, we test really granular fundamental basics. Do they know how to set up a project well? Do they communicate well? Do they document their code well? Can they set up a character and get them to move in the world well? Do they understand how to execute physics well? This is the stuff you spend all of your time doing as an Unreal developer in the game. So we only test for the basics. The advanced stuff, you can Google and YouTube your way to the advanced stuff when you need it. As long as you know how to absorb new knowledge and are continuously evolving that knowledge, there's no problem. And here we found very, very heavily that the Western market developers were really strong on the advanced stuff, but had very poor understanding of the fundamentals. Whereas um, developers, particularly in Africa, India, and the Far East have really, really strong fundamentals. And this is an area where diversity really revealed itself through our process, because if we had hired people based on how they presented their abilities, we would have hired the wrong people. Uh, artists, that's much easier. We hire them strictly based on portfolio. Um, that will automatically give you a very broad, diverse setup when it comes to artists because there's an incredible artistic skill set in the world right now when it comes to concept art and 3D art. You're never going to be lacking the ability to find great talent across the world here. Writers, we, uh, this is strictly track record based. We are a story based game company, so we can't cut corners when it comes to story quality and writing quality. We only hire writers, um, game designers who have a published track record of work and have worked in a professional deadline driven um, to, to spec or to brief driven style. Um, we did in the early days try to give writers who had not yet made it in the industry a leg up by being involved in, in publishable work as in, as in our work. That, however, <laughs> did, not, did not end well. Uh, and we found that at the end of the day, this is one of these areas you just need to hire people who have done it before. Um, same with audio and music, but again, that's quite easy based on what you're looking for, the track record and the, and the talent is there. 
Uh, and for every other discipline, again, we try to lean towards track record. So our, our process is typically to go through first competency, then we take a look at communication skills, then we take a look at attitude. And I will get to the, the, the necessity of attitude further down the line. So this is the, the complex part, the talent knows best part. So the typical HR recruiting process is fundament, fundamentally flawed. Um, it took me a while to figure this out because we failed so heavily in year one. I was trying to figure out why it is we were failing. And if you look at what an HR process is, you throw an ad out, a bunch of people you don't know show up in a, in a short list. You're interviewing a bunch of people, typically in two to three interviews. You are talking to references, you're making a decision. As the decider, you are deciding over people you don't know in a very short time frame with a very limited view of that person, trying to balance that out by asking the references, another bunch of people you don't know, to find a rationalization to believe that you have hired the right person. This is as ridiculous a process as it sounds when I just said it out loud. It makes absolutely no sense at all, and it fails often with good reason. Yeah, it is a very low probability process to get stuff right. The person who does know the talent very well, however, is the talent themselves. So once you've gone through the pool development process, the shortlisting process, the interviewing process, if you are happy, with the short list that you have created, leave the final decision-making to the talent itself by presenting what you expect as a company and letting them decide whether it's a job they can do. And the way that we do this is that we begin, once the short list has landed, the first thing that I do is I show everybody on the short list the contract that they're gonna have to sign. Uh, and our contracts are very generous contracts, but they're also very direct contracts. There are two things in our contracts that many other employment contracts do not have. One of them is a clause that says that at the end of the month, if I am not happy with the work that you have done from a qualitative and output standpoint towards the amount that we have agreed to pay you, then we are not going to pay you. That is a clause that exists in our contract. This typically removes about 90% of the shortlist automatically. Uh, mostly this is a good thing because the only people who would ever sign a contract like this are people who are so confident in the qualitative and consistent nature of their work that they cannot envision a reality where their employer is not going to pay them. That's exactly the kind of people we want. Uh, however, there is a small group of golden nuggets that you will lose with this. And those are the people who have had such terrible freelance experiences in the past and been screwed over so many times that there's an inherent distrust of their payer, their employer in their minds, in the system of how they work. Fear has entered their world and that fear will stop them from signing an agreement like this. And that will cause you to lose one or two great people in every recruiting process. Uh, and from our point of view, we've taken that as a cost of doing business thing uh, because at the end of the day, I'm not overly interested in bringing people with a fear mindset into the company anyway. Uh, but those people you will lose in, in an effort like that. There's another clause that we have in the contract that you seldom have. That is a, a morals and equity uh, and equality. Uh, what is it called? Actually, it's a morals and ethics clause which basically boils down to the, the do not be an asshole clause that allows me to fire a person if they behave in a manner that simply isn't up to scratch for the 21st century. Uh, these two clauses have done an amazing job of removing bad decisions from our world. And if I look back at the last five years and look at the people who are in the company now, not only are they great performers, great talent, but they're also really stellar human beings. And I credit those two clauses for having brought that into our world because there is no way for you to really know that in an interview process. Pay close attention to attitude and commitment during an interview process. If your gut feeling about the person is wrong or you're hearing something they're saying that isn't right, your gut feeling is probably true, go with it. 
because uh, the, if people don't want the work they're applying for, it'll come through pretty clearly in the interview process and you shouldn't hire those people. Right. And I also have a general rule about not negotiating. And this is because of our core values. We have our pay quality. We have our right, shareholder agreement model. If somebody comes to us and thinks they're the world's greatest talent for the role, but wants to get paid twice as much, even if I agree with them, the answer is always no. Because if you're going to have core values, you need to stick to your core values. And if you make one single exception, this is going to destroy the entirety of the culture you're building in the company. There is no single person that is worth any of that. So we very strictly do not negotiate. We say, this is the role. This is what it is. This is what our compensation is. This is what our culture is. You will buy into this or you're not coming in the door. And we have had plenty of people who have chosen not to come in the door. Also, a very large amount of those people came from the Western gaming industry rather than the, uh, the non-Western gaming industry. So not deviating from the values and not negotiating is a core part of our thing. We have a thing that we do. We know it works. You're either on board or you are not on board. This is another one of these things that has automatically sorted out diversity for us. So last but not least, we're at the tail end of this now. I'll be handing over the questions any moment now. So you've done all of this, now what? You've hired a bunch of great diverse people, now what? So here again, we've got four areas. Uh, I have always said from the beginning, I started this company with a lot of planning and thinking. It has a very specific goal that we are attempting to achieve. And what is important is the company's goals and what the company is trying to do. And I've always hammered in from the beginning, I, you, everyone involved in this company is here to service the company's business plan. Company comes first, everything else comes second. And that is an idea that should be embodied by everyone in your organization and cannot be embodied unless everybody believes in the mission. Paying attention to attitude is important. It's not the job of the employer, the company, or people in the company to fix other people. And leadership is not parenting. Do not procrastinate on decisions. If you know a decision needs to be made, make it. And most importantly, as leaders, as managers, as team leaders, you have a job to do. We have a job to do. Do it. Don't do other people's jobs. Do the job that's actually your job. Because otherwise, people are not going to stick around if your company is not succeeding. So, company first. If you try to save a job or a team because you like people, feel bad about it, uh, etc., and this jeopardizes the company and, and it diminishes the company or it causes the company to shut down, you have served, you have failed everyone. Yeah, there is no such thing as a person who is more important than the company and no such thing as a person who is not replaceable. That is not a derogatory definition of a person. It is a definition of what company, what the company's goal is. It's, and companies need to adapt, to survive, to react in order to grow from strength to strength over time. And the goal is to create jobs, not necessarily to save a particular job. And sometimes that means making tough decisions. For example, in the first quarter of this year, I, we, have, we had a three-person marketing team that had been around for 18 months, 24 months at that time. I made the entire team redundant. Not overnight, of course. They were underperforming through the entirety of 2021. When 2022 started, I said, well, I gave you the marketing strategy. You executed that strategy. It didn't work. Now I'm going to give you free reign to come up with your strategy. You have an entire quarter, the budget you require, the, the time and effort you need. Do it your way. And at the end of Q1, it was a comprehensive, if not even greater failure. And at that point, it was clear that they were not going to be the right people for that job. Uh, they, they were warned well in advance. The pathway to how to salvage that situation was presented. They didn't get it done. They were all fairly, with severance, made redundant because there was no point trying to spend money carrying that team if they were not able to pull it off. The company comes first. 
it's important to have clear goals. Works is an extremely well-structured and well-planned company. At the beginning of the year, we set the goals for the entire team. Pretty much whoever you are and whatever team you are, you know exactly what you're doing that year at the start of the year. And those goals are measured on a monthly, quarterly basis as you head towards that goal. Game development is not a fast-paced and fast-moving activity. That's a great advantage to those of us who run and lead game companies. Lean into it. You can actually make long-term plans, so make them. Because having those goals will make life a hell of a lot easier for everyone. And communicate everything well in advance. This is a catastrophic failure of companies in every industry, which I really don't understand at all. And uh, the idea that somehow management needs to hide what the company is doing from employees is nonsensical. There are no employees anywhere in the world who are so stupid as to think that a company is going to be perfectly functioning and always winning all the time. You have a huge talent pool of ideas in, and thinking and ability in that diversity of pool you have hired. Don't waste it. If you're struggling to make the right decisions, if the company is not heading in the right way, if there are threats looming in the horizon, gather your people, put it on the table, work together to resolve it. This is also a really good way to find the people who are committed versus the people who are not. Because if you advertise an existential threat and a bunch of people in your organization start polishing their CVs and, and leaving, those were the wrong people for you to have hired in the first place. Because the right people who believe in the mission, who believe in the company, will get involved and be part of the solution. We have advertised existential threats to this company on two occasions in the last five years. We didn't lose a single person. And the only reason we made it past that existential threat is because of those people. So this communication is immensely useful. Company leadership, management team leaders are not on their own. You have your entire pool of talent. Make good use of them. And attention to attitude is also fairly fundamental. Uh, and typically, this is a experienced leadership versus inexperienced leadership position. No matter how talented a person is, I do not give them a leadership position in the company managing other people until they have achieved life and work experience, because talent is not the only thing you need in order to be a good leader. Um, I was a very talented person in my 20s when I started my first company. I was an absolutely horrendous manager. And one of the reasons why that company did not succeed as much as I wanted to was me. And it is very important to have leaders who know how to lead. Management are not parents. It is not your job to change people. It's your job to nurture and grow people. And especially when you have a diverse pool who come from a selection of cultural backgrounds and a selection of different views and values, it's very important not to confuse parenting with management. But uh, the person's job is to do their job. If their attitude is in their way, if their maturity is in their way, if their right communication style is in their way, there is probably nothing that you can do to fix that. And therefore, re replacing that person is more beneficial to the company than you wasting your time and effort trying to fix a person. It is nobody's job to tolerate other people's major issues right make sure you idea that this decision is made very resolutely and this is a good and this is particularly true for diverse teams uh, and again i go back to an example we had in the uh, in the early days of works uh, and actually even in a previous company that i've worked in I had a, a muslim team member absolutely lovely guy but he simply could not stop trying to convert everybody into islam and it was simply not possible for him to not do this. So at the end of the day, he was eventually fired because despite very clear mentoring and guidance given to the guy about the fact that religion is to be practiced but not forced onto other people, he simply didn't get it. And I only gave it a very, very limited amount of time before I removed him because at the end of the day, it's not really my job to explain that to him. Work is for adults. Treat them like adults. There is nothing worse that you can do in a company to mess up your culture than to take a person who's underperforming or chronically making, making self-generated issues and then rewarding them. 
salary is a performance-based remuneration method. If you have really high-performing, wonderful workers up here and you're paying them a salary, and then you have an idiot over here and you're also paying them a salary, that person over here is going to leave, whereas the idiot is never going to leave. But mistakes have got to be paid for. But, and if somebody makes a mistake, and the mistakes are not a case of accidents, and this is also very important to differentiate, that a mistake is an intentionally executed activity. If I give somebody an order to do something some way, he decides he knows better and goes and does it another way and gets it completely wrong and causes problems for the company, that is not a mistake because he made an, an adult decision to disobey a more experienced executive in the company and decided to do it their own way. That's not a mistake. That has to be have consequences and they have to be proportional. A mistake is something that happens by accident. That can happen a million times a day. That makes no difference at all. It's the intentional issues that need to have consequences. Eradicating negativity is absolutely essential. A bad attitude is a cancer. There's a very, very fine line between somebody who has an intelligent dissenting opinion for the purposes of improving an environment and somebody who's just a naysayer for no other reason than being a naysayer. This is a rule that I execute with brutal certainty. If somebody is just a negative person, he goes because there's no place in that sort of attitude, no place for that attitude in a creative team. It just brings everyone down and, and it grows around the team. And also teams are not for everyone. The person and the role are not the same thing. And sometimes a person and a role do not fit well together. And if you pay attention to your team and attention to how they operate and how they behave, you can get a great deal of value out of this. And when you are putting together diverse teams, this is particularly important because one of the problems with moving away from the birds of a feather rule is this happens. And you do have to pay attention to this, otherwise the team will not function properly. Don't procrastinate on decision-making. Human beings are not data-driven decision-makers, even though we insist on pretending that we are. Especially if you are an academically educated person, you are likely to convince yourself that you need mountains of data to make a decision. Human beings are instinctive decision-makers. Yes, it is a good idea to leave a decision to the last minute that you need to make it. But once you have arrived at the time to make it, don't wait any longer. Because if your gut is simply not leading you properly, improve your gut. But don't start questioning your gut because human instinct is very, very strong. And it's something we lose when we grow from childhood to adulthood because children have an instinctive ability to accept everything in their environment because they're very finely honed to feel when something is wrong. They can hear a truth versus a falsehood. Therefore, they tend to accept a lot of different things. As you become an adult, data gets in the way of that acceptance and bias starts to enter your world. The human gut is an excellent decision-making tool. Lean into it. And do not procrastinate about whether or not decisions are good decisions or bad decisions before you make it. Because to be honest, there is no earthly way that you're going to really know whether a decision is right or wrong until after you've made it. And, I, and the most important thing is to make a decision for clear reasons, own the consequences no matter what they are, and move forward. And a bad decision that is made extremely well and thoroughly owned generates a great deal more value than a good decision that's been made weekly. And last but not least, it is very easy to sit as management and start talking about improving your, your culture, improving your employees, educating your team, all of that is comprehensively useless if you're not doing all of those things for yourself. Management are not on lesser standards. Fix yourself first and make sure that you're setting clear, consistent and good examples. And I spoke earlier about the, 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 the critical moments that happen in a company. One of the things that happened is in year two, this company is financed entirely by my own money. So I always know exactly how much money I have to do things. We started out year one with a really well-running uh, early-stage startup. Year two showed up. We met an investor. He got super excited about works, got us excited about right, acceleration, 
committed to coming in with uh, with a, with an investment round. We geared up and accelerated team size and cost base to match that. The money never came. There were a lot of excuses, but at the end of the day, the money didn't show up. And for the first time, we had racked up a cost base that my money was not able to cover. There was no way to deal with this other than taking some strong, immediate actions. A bunch of people were let go. Yeah, the team that were left, I sat them all down and we had a discussion about what needed to happen. Some people were going to need to be paid late. People who are freelancing across multiple uh, projects who already had fixed incomes would have to wait for their salaries. While we, we created a plan to get ourselves out of it in a year, and then we started executing that plan. And the very first thing I did when we started executing the plan was I left my very expensive house I was renting at the time. I put a bed on my, in, in our WeWork office, got permission from the WeWork team to sleep there, and I lived in the office for a year. Uh, and you set the example that you're prepared to do your part, everybody else followed. And it's important to be valuable as, an, as a leader, add value. Your job as a leader and as a manager, as a team leader, as HR is not to just endlessly talk. You have to clearly show that you add value. And the best way to keep people in the business growing and happy is for your business to succeed. So have a plan, get everyone on board the plan, execute the plan. This company had fortuitously a very clear business plan from the very first day. I wrote it down before I hired even the first person. And whenever somebody goes past that one year limit, I give them the business plan and say, this is what the company does. And this is what you do and how what you do fits into that plan. And I get them on board. That stops them from thinking of, them, of themselves as a meaningless cog in the machine. And when push comes to shove and you need to go above and beyond, they understand what the above and beyond is for. And as long as you are doing your job properly, the company will continue to grow. And if you are not doing your job properly, then fire yourself from that role and give it to somebody who is going to do the job properly and do what you do well instead. Make sure the company is moving forward. The rest will take care of itself. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of that. So I will stop my screen sharing, hopefully. This, this, I got to say this, right? This is a... Uh... Progressive. This is also like you know where you stand with the company, right? You know exactly where you stand. You know what you need to do. You know what's going on. You know, you know. That's amazing. That's that's what years of experience will do, right there. Um, okay, so we got a couple questions before time yeah. runs out. From the Discord, what's the biggest thing that employers don't think about when trying to retain talent? Uh, the biggest thing that employers don't think about when trying to retain talent. Um, I think employer happiness kind of grinds itself into two different areas where for an employee, they understand that they work in a competitive environment, in a competitive workplace, and therefore their skill set must grow. Uh, I think it is, it is important to understand that people need to be challenged. It's quite important to be, it's quite easy to be lazy as an employer. You have, especially if you have an irreplaceable employee, you're doing a killer job in a particular area. It is easy as an employer to go, right, let's, let's keep this guy here uh, and just pay him more. But the thing is that that's not going to evolve that person. And you need to challenge yourself as an employer sometimes and just lift people out of their comfort zone and out of the, the zone that they drive value to the business and give them something that will challenge them, that will grow them. Right. And that can yield wonderful surprises. But I do think that it's important that companies look at their employees as people who need to have pathways that improve themselves because there may be a day when the company is not there and they need to move onwards. Or then there may be a day when, when the, what they're doing is not happy for, happiness driving for them anymore and there needs to be a path that leads them out of that. So uh, establishing such a path is a good idea. So all of this stuff that you shared in the talk, you share this with people when you're hiring them as well? So it's like, yeah, we are yeah. completely open about all of our cultural characteristics and values on day one. No point hiding it because you don't really want to hire someone, pay them for six months and then find out that there's a fundamental disagreement on a, on a core value proposition in the company. You mm -hmm. want all of that out on day one. And a lot of people disappear from our shortlist when we dump those values in front of them. I, I like those values. <laughs> so do I. 
Yeah, I bet. Okay. Uh, so I know there was a talk about equity. Uh, how much equity do you set aside for team members? Yeah, this is a tricky one. Depends on how your company is set up. Again, I have an easy time with this one because I funded the company myself. So I own 100% of the shares. So I can pretty much decide this myself. And what, what I do is there are two things I looked at for the equity. I wanted it to be in a situation where if a person spent 10 years in the company, uh, that we, once we reach our goals of becoming the large public company we want to be, that they'll be able to walk away with a million pounds for every 10 years that they spent with the company. So I actually went and did a calculation looking at our value growth and, and, uh, and share options that we needed to deliver and say, if a person's 10 year investment with us needs to deal a million pounds in return, how do we, what, what does that number need to be? And we calculated that down. And then we set aside a portion of the company for current and future employees. It basically boils down to about 5% of the company being reserved for the current and future employees. That's amazing. That is truly amazing. Okay. So it uh, looks like they are ready. We appreciate you so much, Kaz. Uh, are you on our Discord? You in the Discord? Uh, I am on your Discord, yep. All right. Well, you're not my friend on Discord. I wish you were my friend on Discord. We can easily fix that. <laughs> That's right. Because... <laughs> I, I would love some advice and mentoring on some things, and that would be amazing. Yes, I thank you so much. Right now. Feel free to hit me up uh, on social or on, on Discord. Um, I'm actually listed as Cost from Works Games on the on the Indie Discord. Why have your email? I've got the power. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Everyone join our Discord. The other uh, talk is just starting right now, so tune in. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.